I'm going to say a word, and I want you just to free associate for a moment with this word. And I want to ask you to, to just take your hand out like this and to give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down, an honest thumbs up or thumbs down, depending on your emotional response to this word I'm going to give you. You ready? You ready for this? The word is institutions. Oh, I see a lot of thumbs down. All right, all right. Now, I'm going to give you the name of a particular institution, and I want you to give me the same vote one way or the other. Ready? Here it is. March Madness. Oh, I see a lot of thumbs up. That's great. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why these very different associations with the broad concept of institutions and with the specific experience of particular ones of them? That is what I want to think about with you today. I want to think with you about the significance of the institutions of our time, the ones that touch us, the ones that we have an opportunity to influence, and why this whole subject of institutions actually matters to God. I want to start out by uh, giving you a definition of institutions uh, in the terms that anthropologists often use to describe their nature. It's going to sound a little bit like a college class at the beginning here. Hang in there, because this is going to land in our lives in an important way. Anthropologists say that institutions are cultural creations that are formed by the long-term interplay of four essential elements. Those elements are artifacts, arenas, roles, and rules. Now, institutions always involve some uh, combination of artifacts, meaning physical things, stuff that we can touch and make that come to have a special meaning or value to us. Uh, in the institution of college basketball, for example, since we're thinking a lot about this at the moment in our culture, uh, the artifacts are things like uh, a ball of a certain size and, uh, and color and striping and, uh, and these great big uh, glass backboards uh, with orange-colored hoops and conical nets that hang from them. These are, are some of the artifacts we associate with the uh, institution of, of basketball. In, in college basketball, um, those artifacts uh, come to have a larger meaning and usefulness in the context of a particular arena. And if I say to you, March Madness, you know, chances are your minds don't race to a, to a beach scene, right? Unless you're thinking of spring break. That can be a form of March Madness, I suppose. Uh, but most of the time, what you're going to be thinking about is this you know, large flat floor with this big rectangle marked out on it, surrounded by banks of stands and maybe a, a, a big scoreboard overhead. That's sort of the arena in which the college basketball institution plays itself out. But those artifacts and that kind of arena still wouldn't make a whole lot of sense if it were not for uh, the roles that certain people play within that context. And just think of the roles that are essential to the institution of, of college basketball, right? You've got uh, players that run up and down the court handling the ball. That's their role. You've got referees that are moving around in the striped shirts uh, and playing their particular 
uh, role. You've got uh, people who are sitting up in the stands, the fans. Their role is to, you know, to scream and to cheer and to kind of go create a sense of pandemonium. There are people at home and in offices whose role is to fill out brackets. I hope you've had yours uh, playing out for you pretty nicely. And for the record, I want you to know I've got Yale knocking off Kentucky in the final round. That's, that's my prediction this year. And finally, the institution of college basketball has got these rules about them that come to play alongside of the roles and the artifacts and the arenas. In the NCAA tournament, there are only 64 or 68, if you uh, calculate the, the complete rules, only a set number of teams can compete. You lose once, and what happens? You are out. That's right. You just got one loss in the tournament. You can shoot the ball but you're not allowed to shoot another player, no matter how angry you get at that person. Though you can mug them when they come down the lane. I've seen that happen in, in uh, tournament play. And, and what is fascinating about these rules is they don't actually limit the game. They give life to the game, right? These rules, these boundaries are what make the game in an important sense. So... College basketball is this institution that is formed by the interplay of these artifacts, arenas, roles, and rules. It's not a perfect institution. We all know that. Um, it is, uh, it's an institution on which, I guess, something like $2.5 billion is wagered illegally annually. Uh, businesses see about $1.9 billion in lost productivity during March Madness. Uh, because we're distracted, uh, paying attention to other things. Uh, and yet still, when bracket time rolls around, despite all of the flaws in the institution, we still smile, right? We still give a, a thumbs up. Why is that? I think it's because of what we experience in the midst of an institution like this. Uh, you know, we there's something just incredibly exciting about seeing these immensely talented young athletes simply playing the sport for the love of the game long before they're tainted by big salaries or by celebrity hype. These folks are just out there giving it their all in a way that we just don't see sometimes in professional athletics. We love the, the thrill of the Cinderella victories. You know, these teams that we've never even heard of from places, the colleges that are hardly even known who suddenly rise and knock off some big name. We, we thrill at the chance to, to see stars born right before our very eyes, people who, who were unknowns and who were going to become household names in time. Uh, we just love the experience of, of laughing, the suspense of the, of the end of the game, the exhilaration, the sense of community that forms in our offices and uh, in the watering holes, in our homes as we gather to eat pizza and celebrate and just enjoy these things. Because amidst a world that is still so divided by things like race and class and just the sheer pace of life these days, March Madness is one of those institutions that just binds us together somehow. It's, it's about flourishing. It's about the sense of flourishing that gets promoted as this institution works its way into our life. Now, this is what institutions are and are supposed to be about at their very best. 
They're about the exercise of power that enables flourishing to take place. Institutions, hear me on this clearly, are the way that power gets preserved and is allowed to move through time. Um, And I want to think about that a little bit more deeply with you. Uh, Because God has designed this world in such a way that that his image, his creative image in us, and the power he entrusts to human beings is not just born by individuals, but by entire institutions. In other words, we need to care about the condition of the family. That's the primary institution in human life. Uh, We need to care about the institution of the church, of government, um, of the justice system, of health care, journalism, academia, the arts, and even sports like college basketball. We need to care about the condition of institutions because they are bearers, in a sense, of the image of God and of the kind of power that can lead towards human flourishing in greater measure. And they do this in a way that, that, that it transcends the capacity of any one individual or any uh, even single community of people to carry on the good. In fact, vital institutions, without them, without vital institutions, power frequently stalls or it becomes subject to corruption uh, in a culture. Uh, We go back so often to the biblical narrative for a reminder of this. We've been studying in recent weeks the uh, story of Adam and Eve in the garden uh, as an example or a picture, an archetype of, of how human life goes well and how it unravels. And in the story that we read in Genesis, the first three chapters, we see an institution potentially starting. You know, Adam and Eve are there in uh, the garden. They're surrounded by these artifacts, these physical things, trees, fruit, um, animals. Uh, There's an arena here uh, that that they get to play in. When I was growing up, uh, I, I used to follow basketball at Madison Square Garden in New York. I was a New Yorker. I was a follower of the Knicks. And I love to be in the midst of Madison Square Garden. Adam and Eve are in the midst of a much larger, more impressive garden. They're in the Garden of Paradise. That's the arena in which they're uh, playing out the use of these artifacts. They also have vital roles, right? They are the children of God. That's one of their roles. Uh, They're helpmates to each other. That's a secondary role. They are uh, caretakers uh, over the garden, and uh, they're the namers of the creatures of the earth. Uh, these are very important roles that they're playing, and they've got clear rules they've been given. They are, they're told that they're free to re- eat of any tree in the garden except that one over there behind the fence. There's some boundaries. There's freedom. There's boundaries. There are these basic rules that do not limit the game. They're what give life to the game, to the experience of, hum- of, of humanity. But these patterns that they're living in, this confluence of these things, never gets institutionalized. Right? It gets wrecked. Sin breaks, begins to break it, it down. And so this amazing life that could have gone out generations never gets the chance to really do, to do that. And by the next generation, we see that Cain is now no longer a helpmate to his brother Abel. He's at his throat. And then by the generation after that, we've got um, the arrogance of Babel. People aren't even really working together anymore. 
Uh, there's a confusion uh, in the world. Then there's the near total depravity of Noah's generation after that. And this pattern just continues in the Bible. You see, you see civilization, you see um, the power for flourishing, get a start sometimes, and then go crashing down again. All through the book of Judges, we see this cycle of national renewal and then collapse. National, God raises up a significant, and then the nation follows that person for a while, and then there's a dot, nosedive again. And then you see it later in the history of Israel. God will raise up a brilliant king like Hezekiah or Uzziah, and they'll institute wonderful reforms for a season in the nation's life, and there's a greater quality of, of flourishing and justice for all. And then somebody else comes along, and it goes on a nosedive Again, uh, the changes, the potential for flourishing does not get what? Institutionalized. It just never gets institutionalized. How often in our time do we see that happening? Uh, How many times have we seen um, a benevolent or wise administration or individual arise who are seen particularly good at the use of power and the sharing of power and the application of it to create something good. Um, And so they forge a a strong family in one generation. You you probably have one in the memory of your your family system, of a family that was particularly healthy. Or they they start a thriving uh, church uh, that is wonderfully influential in their community. Or they build a booming business. Or they help uh, lead a renaissance in government, or they start a significant people-blessing organization, or they lead a movement that expands the welfare and the rights of other people. But then that person dies, right? And, 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 and they go away, and, and the things that they accomplished begin to wither away because other people don't seem able to reproduce the driving genius that, that was that person's special a gift to the world. And somehow the value and visions of that creative person uh, just are not enfleshed in a system of artifacts and arenas and roles and rules that could allow what they saw and felt and cared about to go on after them. Um, do you know that it takes, according to researchers, it takes three generations for an institution to be established? If you really want something that's going to be able to carry on that flourishing life, it's going to take three generations of carefully cultivating the artifacts, arenas, roles, and rules that can allow that to really happen. Um, Three uh, generations. And I was curious about this, so I I went to one of my great sources of information, Ancestry.com, and I looked it up and I said, you know, how long is a generation? Well, Ancestry.com says it's 25 years. It's from the birth of a parent to the birth of a child. And then I got to thinking, you know, that's fascinating because um, on a minor scale, I figured out that the NCAA tournament is now three generations old. It was started in 1939. It's now a what? An institution, right? It's now an institution uh, in American life. And my friend Andy Crouch in his wonderful book, Playing God, reminds us uh, that, that this is true on the largest kind of scale, on a macro scale as well. And he, and, and he speculates that, that this three-generational pattern uh, needed to really ingrain the good in a culture, 
is why God introduces himself the way he does. If you look at the way God introduces himself a lot in the Old Testament, he does it as follows. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says it again and again. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's it's like God God is saying, I am the God of not just the once-off blessing. I'm the God of institutionalized blessing. I'm the God that wants to set up an order and a pattern to life that, that will bring flourishing generation after generation after generation. And, and you and I, we are heirs of this institutionalizing impulse at its best. You know, we are heirs of that. I mean, think about it. We live in a democracy that took at least three generations, really, to come into being, uh, to develop uh, sufficient uh, combination of artifacts, arenas, rules, and roles. It took the blood of patriots and tyrants to form that institution. And you think of all the blessing that has come from the institution of democracy. You know, we're heirs to a free market system that works the same way, that, that has this amazing set of, of interlocking pieces that allow for thriving in a way that no other economic system on earth has ever been able to accomplish. We're the children of a culture of, of civil rights, an institution that's still in the process of being established, you know, still needs work, still is at risk of, of being uh, destroyed. Uh, we are the heirs of an innovative, life-giving church, if you're a part of this congregation's life. Uh, we're right, just if you're following the calendar on this, we're right towards the, the tail end of the second generation of this church's life. And we're raising up and cultivating all kinds of younger leaders around here because we're counting on them to take it through the third generation to allow the institutionalizing of the strength that is Christ's church and its power uh, to be used of God for human flourishing. But one of the great dangers confronting uh, our time, I think, is, is the neglect of institutions. Uh, we, we've become so individualistic in our world today. We're so much into the superhero individual that we can come to neglect um, the role that institutions have to play and need to play in our world. And part of the reason I think we do it is because we've gotten pretty discouraged about institutions. Um, you know, we, somebody says, we, I'd like to institutionalize you. That doesn't sound good to us. Um, but, but a lot of us have had bad experiences with big institutions. You know, I remember growing up, I grew up in the Watergate era. You know, I came of age in the Watergate era. Some of you came of age in the Priestgate era. Others of us, we've just seen these big institutions that just seem to, uh, the banking industry and its calamities. You know, we've been brokenhearted by institutions over time. And as a result, we sort of retreat back into our private sanctuaries and our own individual versions of, of flourishing. And so maybe we, we give up on the family. You know, we surrender to the pattern of, of, of brokenness or fragmentation that has overtaken a lot of families. Or we give up on government. We don't bother to vote anymore. We don't even think about running for public office anymore. We give up on the church, maybe, as just another corrupt, decrepit institution. Or we abandon the idea that businesses can be about more than the bottom line. They can be about blessing their whole community in a wonderful way. We just go back to thinking it's about 
the, the check. Maybe we give into the idea that the arts, it's supposed to be this narcissistic celebrity culture expression instead of this instrument for advancing the good and the beautiful. Uh, it is really easy to get discouraged about institutions and to get very cynical and anti-institutional. But that mindset imperils our culture now because without care of the institutions, the institutions become dangerous forces potentially uh, in the life of a people. God calls us to fight for our institutions. There's one big idea I have two big ideas I want to take, have you take away from today, but this is the first of them. God wants us to fight for our institutions. He wants us to work with love and courage to reclaim them, to leverage their capacity for flourishing. And the model we have is Jesus on this one. I'm going to take you back now to Luke chapter 19, this critical text that describes how Jesus comes at these things. Uh, In this passage, we first see Jesus uh, arriving at the brow of a hill and looking out across the Kidron Valley at the city of Jerusalem spread out. And the response that he has to seeing this is that he breaks out in tears. Jesus begins to weep for Jerusalem. You see, God had this dream he called Zion. It was to be this community, this great city on a hill that was to be a place of vitality and opportunity and justice and spirituality, but now it's gone. Now it has become just a clamoring chaos of a city. And Jesus literally weeps over Zion, that its artifacts, that this great arena is now being misused. And then we see Jesus entering into that city, and we see him walking into the temple, the great temple at Jerusalem. And he sees that this house of prayer that it was meant to be, this place where people were to get realigned with the character of God, to find their sins forgiven, to get the the insight they needed to go out and live creatively with the power in their hands. This, This magnificent institution that was the temple has now become, says Jesus, a den of robbers. And he's right. It's become just another commercial concern. Uh, The people that work at the temple are getting fat off of charging the pilgrims that come to worship there, these usurious rates. Um, You know, it's like going to the United Center and paying, you know, $7.50 for a hot dog. It's just something wrong about that, you know. Um, And people are coming to to buy uh, doves for the sacrifice, and they're being charged incredibly, uh, overcharged incredibly for this. And it's breaking the heart of Jesus, uh, of God himself, to see what had once been this a glorious institution now reduced to, to this money-making venture. And, and so Jesus just won't accept it. Uh, he will not conscience it. And so in this passage, we see Jesus actually going in and overturning the tables of the money changers that were working there and, 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 and scattering the doves, you know, and getting rid of them. And in fact, in one of the other accounts of this in, in the New Testament, he's described as making a whip of cords and sort of lashing the animals out of the place because he's just... He's so upset at what's become of this institution. Now, this is an incredible picture and a vivid picture we're given. Um, and then it's fascinating because in Matthew's uh, version of this same story, um, Matthew appends another tale in which Jesus is, is walking along and he sees this fig tree uh, that's growing nearby. And Jesus is actually hungry. 
but the fig tree is not bearing any figs. And Jesus curses the fig tree. It's kind of a weird little story, you know? God cursing this little fig tree because it's not bearing figs. It is, when it's, when it's put next to this story about the temple, you get it. You know, God is, is, is upset when things that are meant for flourishing are, are, aren't doing it anymore. They're just taking up resources <laughs> and not producing what's necessary. They're like zombies, my friend Andy says. You know, zombies, you know, they just consume resources, but they don't advance any kind of flourishing. And institutions can be like that. Institutions can get zombified, in a sense, right? They just soak up resources, but they're no longer advancing, uh, flourishing. Um, So our families, or the church, or government, or the justice system, or the arts, or academia, or journalism, or any other one of these marvelous cultural institutions uh, that, that, that were meant to bear the image of God and to promote it in other people, they can lose their vision about what their job really is. And, and they can become just rigor mortized in a sense. Uh, when I was a young pastor just first starting up here, I had a chance to attend a, a Chamber of Commerce meeting here in Oak Brook and to hear Christopher Galvin speak. I don't know how many of you know that name, but Christopher Galvin was the third generation of the great family that founded Motorola. Uh, So Motorola was an institution, or at least on the verge of becoming a major permanent American institution at the time that Chris Galvin was leading it. I'll never forget what he said that day. He said said that um, the danger of success is that it breeds inflexible orthodoxies. Inflexible orthodoxies. Uh, it, it begins to get rigor mortis, is what he was saying. And he was right. And that rigor mortis actually eventually took over his great company. And, and, it, and, it, and the company that gave us the razor <laughs> and car radios uh, is, is nothing like the institution that it once was today. Sooner or later, every institution becomes about sustaining the status quo. It becomes about protecting the privilege of the elites, it becomes about suppressing the voice of the dissident or the inconvenient person. It loses its calling to be about sharing power and advancing the flourishing of everybody. That is why institutions need trustees. And that's the second and final idea I want to leave you with today. Institutions desperately need trustees, uh, people who are both champions and also reformers of those institutions. Uh, it needs people who are, that, are, that understand, that have studied the institution well enough to, to know what are the key ar- artifacts and the arenas and the roles and the rules whose combination produces life and, and who value those essential ingredients. It needs champions for institutions, but it also knows, needs people that love the mission of the institution enough to, to overturn the tables, uh, to shake things up when the institution is no longer doing its job, right? It needs reformers as well as champions. And, and Jesus is, you know, this model of the ultimate trustee, in a sense. And he's calling us into this ministry ourselves. Trusteeship is dangerous business. Mark my words about that. It, it, you can get gray hairs doing it. You can get a lot worse doing it. History is strewn with the bones of of people who were shot or sacrificed 
or spat upon when they were just trying to be good trustees, uh, to save, in a sense, uh, the life of a people. Here is my challenge to you. Be a trustee anyway. Be a trustee uh, anyway. Be one of those people in our society who's a champion for what is best about the artifacts, arenas, roles, and rules of the institutions that matter to you, that are touching your life, uh, that uh, you have an opportunity to influence. But where they have been corrupted by inflexible orthodoxies or by the misuse of their power, then set your hands to reforming them. Because think about this. I mean, really give some thought to this. If you can not only use your individual power to promote flourishing wherever you can reach, but actually be part of using your individual capacity to shape the life of an institution, then that power for flourishing can last for generations. Your influence, God's influence through you, can go on for generations. Would you pray with me? As the band comes up, let's bow our heads together. God, I think of the words of the psalmist who prayed, Lord, establish the work of our hands. And that is our prayer, Lord, that you would enable us to work and live in such a way that the good that has touched our life might go on to touch the lives of many, many, many other people throughout the generations to come. So guide us, Lord, as we seek to be the trustees that you model and you call us to be. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.